Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined by my colleagues. Yulia Joja, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. And Alberto Haas from AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that are emerging along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why this matters to the United States. Joining us today is Peter Pomerantsev, a senior fellow at Johns Hopkins University and most recently author of Nothing is True. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Dalibor, I'd like to start with you to interview Peter, to interrogate Peter. Carry away. Great. Thank you. Um, I have two items on my agenda. First, I wanted to thank our listeners for early feedback. We've received a number of reactions to the early episodes we've released. Um, Shay Kathiri, a friend of the show, said that we missed a real opportunity by launching the podcast on, the, on Valentine's Day by not naming it uh, From Russia with Love. Uh, I received a complaint from another friend of the show, who is also a family member, that there are too many senior fellows on the program. And I think <laughs> we are not, Heresy. Not, not doing ourselves any favors by, uh, by having Peter, who is uh, a twin senior fellow at Johns Hopkins and at LSE. Uh, but I think Giselle and I at least could, could try to lobby AI's leadership for uh, you know, more invent inventive Byzantine titles for, 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 for the two of us. But I'm, I'm really delighted to have Peter on the show, uh, who uh, really is one of the best people to talk about um, the sort of strange situation we find ourselves in in this, in this crisis uh, on the border of Ukraine, where information warfare seems to be playing a massive role. We are recording this on Wednesday the 16th, uh, the day that was scheduled for the invasion to 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 begin supposedly and and really all these claims and counterclaims being floated uh on 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 both sides uh and perhaps my first question for 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 peter who is the author of not only nothing is true and everything is possible a brilliant book from 2014 which really captured the the zeitgeist of the of the past decade but also of this is not propaganda more recently uh you know but, but the, really we are seeing the west rising up to the challenge of information warfare waged uh, against it by, 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 by the Russians, whether really what we are seeing is, is a sort of you know, counter, counterattack, so to, so to speak. And if so, what are, what are its, its implications? Well, I'd be very careful with terms like information warfare, but, but, but let's have a, because they're, they're already a piece of information warfare, <laughs> because they sort of suggest that, that information isn't communication, that it's manipulation. You know, by calling things information warfare, you're already sort of denigrating the democratic capacity to, to think and, and, and debate. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I like to think about what the Russians do more like a war on information rather than information warfare. But, but let's just be concrete and not use these sort of terms because they're so slippery. Um, what we know is that in 2008... And 2014, um, Putin thrived on uncertainty, ambiguity, and confusion. 
he invaded Georgia and Ukraine uh, while denying he was doing anything for a long time. And because American and British and other Western governments didn't call him out early, that meant he could operate in the murk. You know, he was like one of these stalkers that might follow you around in the street and then you turn around going, hey, what are you doing? They're like, oh, I'm just walking around. I'm just walking around. <laughs> this time we're like sort of screaming, you're a stalker, you're dangerous, you're doing something bad. That limits his capacity for action because before he could act very quickly, he could get within the Western OODA loop, if we're going to use a, a, a sort of a, a very technical term, which basically means sort of, you know, that chain of interpreting what's going on on the ground, convening allies, taking action, which are all slow steps when you're dealing with the Western alliance. You know, he'd act so quickly, that was frazzled. There was confusion about what was going on. His various allies and sympathizers could say, well, we don't know if he's invading Georgia. We don't know if he's invading Ukraine and delay things. By the time sanctions packages are put together, it's too late. They're weak, etc. So clearly this time, knowing our weaknesses, the British and the Americans really, but maybe with a little bit of help from, from others, have decided to call him out early, allowing us to organize the costs earlier. So I don't know if you want to call, you know, that's, yeah, I suppose you could say that sort of preemptively looking to usurp some of his information games. I don't know if it's quite information war. Um, I don't know if that's the right term at all, but but clearly we are entering a perception battle, battlefield much more actively. We're doing things we haven't done before, like sort of sharing intelligence publicly, because it's not really sharing it, it's kind of drip feeding it. Um, but it also has, and here I think we're still very, very far behind the Russians, the Chinese, um, the Saudis, the Iranians, uh, or even the Hungarians. We're still not thinking about how do you communicate with different audiences about this? Um, we're still not thinking of side negative effects. So one of the side negative effects has been to really sort of like hit the Ukrainian economy in various ways. So we're not really, we're kind of, we're still limiting what we do to these very clumsy briefings to DC journalists. Uh, the journalists then go write about it in ways which are often quite irresponsible because they're looking for headlines and clickbait. And that can then have a negative effect. So I don't think we should have an information war strategy. I think that's something that authoritarians do. We should have something like a global engagement strategy. You know, we should be talking to different publics. We should be talking to different people. It's not just making a press briefing and then walking away and then and then and then kind of like taking no responsibility for what happens next. So um, I'd like to think we're at the start of a process um, to really understand the modern world. Um, we're very far behind. And um, the Russians, the Chinese have developed their own theories of information statecraft. And we're still so far behind in really formulating our democratic version. Peter, can you take us 
to dip our toes into Russia. Um, you talk about Russia and China and other authoritarian regimes, um, and you talk about how we should be learning to talk to Russians. Um, and you looked for so many years into Russia and what is happening there in terms of information, but also perceptions. What we see in, in very limited um, in very limited bits and pieces of information is that the majority of Russians do support an aggressive Russian foreign policy, defense policy, etc. Um, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And we also see, um, you know, these news from the generals in Russia who are um, who are warning Putin something rather rare. So can you help us make sense of what is going on in public opinion in Russia? outside of the Kremlin and what our chances are from DC to actually be more effective in communicating with Russians. Yeah, I mean, uh, overall, the Russian propaganda domestic narrative has been that the West has gone crazy. The West is uh, kicking up this war hysteria um, along with its crazy Ukrainian, you know, whatever, uh, servants. And um, and Russia just wants peace, and Putin is Gandhi, and Biden is Saddam Hussein. It's kind of that's the message. Um, that's slowly changing, or there are some signs that it's changing and moving much more towards the Ukrainians are attempting genocide in eastern Ukraine. Therefore, Russia, like NATO in Yugoslavia, has to intervene to stop genocide. So, but that hasn't been switched on fully the way that it was in 2014 and 2008. Um, so that's kind of what's going on. Um, but it can change very quickly. You know, it can change very, very quickly. So I don't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that as any kind of like reason to relax. Um, so the genocide for sure not. <laughs> yeah. No reason yeah. to relax there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, how can we communicate with the Russian people better? I, th I thought Biden said some of the right words yesterday in his speech. He said, look, we have no quarrel with the Russian people. If this war happens, it's on your government. It's an unnecessary war. I think those are the all good things to say. The problem is it has to be consistent. Again, we're doing briefings and walking away. In the modern world, especially, you need nonstop channels of communication. Um, we don't really do that. We did that a little bit in the Cold War. Um, we don't even try these days, uh, which I just find bizarre. There are so many tools to do it now. It's so much easier to reach out and talk to the Russian people directly through social media, through the various, the many kind of celebrities and, and figures in the West who are hugely respected and loved by the Russian public, whether it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I think if he were to make a statement would definitely be listened to. Um, you know, he's a very interesting kind of like celebrity stroke pol political actor um, through, to, through to many, many, many others. So there's huge opportunities, but it's not just about communicating what we're doing now. That's, we have to go much, much deeper. We have to think about long-term engagement and, and what, what might that mean? Um, it means starting a dialogue with the Russian people. It won't be easy. It'll get trolled, but tr it has to be done about how do they see the future of Russia and the world? That's a big conversation that's missing here. We've let Putin own the dialogue. Uh, defining the world in terms of conspiratorial struggles between empires. 
Um, he never asked the question to Russians, well, who do you want to be in the world? Do you actually want to be a normal nation state that gets along with its neighbors and is wealthy and successful in the international system? Do you really want to be fighting everyone? I, my sense is that many Russians don't want to be fighting everyone all the time. So, you know, all that can be done. And, and I think that's just part of the modern world. And, and we have to kind of understand that we're living in this, you know, in this world where information and perception is so much more important than before, simply because information is so much more important than before. I mean, it's just the reality of, of where we live. I mean, even, you know, the very real kinetic threat, I'm not underplaying the real war. I don't, you know, uh, I don't in any way think that real war has gone away. It's clearly there. But, but even this sort of like, you know, the Russian aggression now against Ukraine, you know, clearly it's kinetic. Clearly there's real tanks and there'll be real blood. But it's also straight away a framing war. Is this about, you know, NATO expansion? Is this about Ukrainian sovereignty? Is this about... Putin being a psycho. You know, all these things are immediately part of the kinetic uh, dynamic and, and inseparable from it. So, you know, the, that's, that's an environment that we have to start engaging with. Um, my, my fear is that there's... My, my fear is that the generation running America right now are frankly a little bit old. Um, and if they're not old, they've always acted very old. And they haven't really grasped on a visceral level how important information is. My sense is the next generation, the 30-year-olds, the sort of young 40-year-olds who will come, you know, and graduate through the NSC and the State Department and all these places, they will get it. They get it viscerally. You know, their lives have been influenced by it. My fear is that we still have a generation who just don't quite understand the modern world. I hope I'm wrong, by the way. I hope I'm wrong. That's just, that's just, just seems to me that... They still think in terms of briefing press conferences. I mean, it's just funny. Uh, Peter, I wonder if I can ask you a, a sort of similar question uh, about your native land. Um, there are which one's of, that? Sorry, Ukraine. Okay. Okay. Oh, fine. Fine. Right, okay. Fine. Okay. So you're in right. England. <laughs> uh, oh well, I thought you were raised in Kiev, or uh, I don't know. I, I I lived the first nine months of my life in Kiev. I had time oh, I'm to sure throw up I'm sure to throw up on on the Soviet Union, and then I left. <laughs> Okay. Well, you did the right thing. Um, at any rate, there's a, uh, there are competing narratives about who the Ukrainians are, both in the world and particularly in the United States. You know, on the one hand, you have sort of the the Russian line that um, Ukraine is naturally, uh, you know, part of uh, is little Russia, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, part of Moscow's historical sphere of influence, uh, so on and so forth. And then you have sort of the, the counter narrative that these are plucky freedom fighters trying simultaneously to cast off corruption and preserve their independence. Um, what is your read on who, and obviously the, uh, it, things are different than they were in 2014, uh, unquestionably. So, how would you describe, you know, this is a crazy, impossible question, but who, who are Ukrainians now? <laughs> it, it's a crazy, impossible question, but, but one that I study professionally. So the program, the research program. It's a lifetime employment scheme, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the research program I run at Johns Hopkins University is called ARENA, and we think about disinformation and propaganda and what to do about it, and especially how can media do something about it. 
Um, and a lot of our time is actually spent doing social research. We really want to understand audiences. And that means we do a huge amount of social research in, in Ukraine. And one of the large projects we did recently was actually uh, all about 30 years of independence in Ukraine. So Ukraine celebrated its 30 years of independence and really trying to tease out what do Ukrainians have in common? Um, where is the nation still fragile? Um, it's very interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much into the weeds you want to go, um, but um, I think if we're going to paint some very broad brushstrokes, which is always ridiculous, um, what's very striking is Ukraine in Ukraine is is, um, and we find this across the country, um, a genuine and very deep kind of rejection of of authoritarian pressure. Yeah. Uh, very, very different to Russia. There's no deification of paternalistic authoritarian power. They don't have the sadomasochistic relationship that Germany had in the 30s and Russia does very clearly today with a father figure, a Putin, a Stalin, a Peter the Great, who you both adore and needs to humiliate you and you you want them to hurt you, which is very, very present in, in, in the Russian discourse um, and, and, and is sort of evident in all sorts of language and, and cultural phenomena. The Ukrainian one is very different. It's a much more classic post-colonial thing where you don't trust the government. You don't trust authority. Your instinct is to rebel. They're heroes of the Cossacks, you know, who are these kind of free-loving or wandering everywhere horizontal organizations. Incredibly strong civil society. Um, and that concluded everything from, you know, church groups or NGOs through to, you know, in some ways, mafia and football hooligans who are also civil society in some ways. Um, so so all those things uh, make them very, very different to Russia. Um, that's also a problem because if you distrust authority to assert to and you distrust the state always, it also makes it very hard to build the state. You know, so that's kind of the paradox Ukraine is in. And if we talk about its kind of development going forward, they're going to have to find, I don't think they'll ever be able to have a kind of German uh, model of, of, of the Beamtenstadt, you know, the, the bureaucratic state, which requires this really high trust in bureaucratic authority, um, which is the model in a lot of Central Europe. Ukraine is different. It's more than like Southern Italy or Greece. I think the state that they develop the sort of mechanisms in the state will have to be much more almost like civil society, working with people, very dialogue driven. Um, I, I think there's a lot of hope for actually Ukraine being the first country that might do uh, online um, democratic interactions properly. So municipal budget making is going down really well there on the kind of uh, on the on the, on the digital level. Yeah. So 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 they're in a really interesting place. They suffer from a lot of the problems that post-colonial countries do. Where, where people are very good at rebellion, very good at throwing off and not trusting authority, not very good at building institutions. And also the old problem that a lot of post-colonial countries have is that the people who do get into power act like mini-colonizers, because the tradition has always been to rape Ukraine, whether it's the Germans, the Russians, the Austrians, the Poles. You get into power, you extract, you rape, you destroy. And look, we have this everywhere. We have it in Africa as well, where the new elites end up imitating the old empire masters and using the state extractively. So that's a terrible cycle to break. Um, and, you know, it's obviously expressed in things like, like corruption and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, 
um, there's lots and lots, if you take the bigger picture, there's lots and lots and lots of progress as well. Um, I don't know if that answered your questions. That might have been a bit too much in the weeds. No, uh, no, that was beautiful. No, this is fascinating. I would like to, if I, if I may, to tie this, this set of observations about Ukraine into some of what you said earlier about uh, public diplomacy and, 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 and the sort of sluggish global engagement that we are seeing um, from, the, from the West. Obviously, uh, there is this argument being made very commonly about how the West and the United States and the EU used to stand for something specific and about uh, you know, what it is that we are standing for is you know, much more ambiguous these days. I was, I was thinking about this the other day in, in the context of an argument made by Hans Kundnani of Chatham House, who says that there has been this inward turn in the European Union in particular uh, over the past decade. You know, in the old days, Europeans believed that the EU had something to teach the rest of the world about multilateralism, about cooperation, about overcoming old enmities and, 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 and so, so on and so forth. It was perhaps a naive perspective on the world, but it was a perspective that was overwhelmingly optimistic. Today, it is the opposite, right? There is a you know, there's a European Commissioner for European Way of Life, as if our, uh, you know, as, as, as if our savoir vivre were under attack. Um, and, and you sort of hear this, not, not just from the populists, but, but also from, you know, the sort of most vocal pro-Europeans, the sort of sense that the outside world, immigration, the global economy, technology are somehow th threats that we should protect ourselves against. Uh, and yet Ukraine is in this odd place where, um, really, Maidan was was about that that wholehearted embrace of of the old sort of optimistic view of Europe, European integration, multilateralism, cooperation, you know, deeper ties with the West, liberal order, however you call it. Uh, yet it has sort of coincided with this inward shift within the EU, and uh, I mean, we haven't seen a whole lot of progress since the association agreement in terms of. You know, bringing bringing Ukraine closer to the to the West. I wonder how this plays out in, in in Ukraine these days. Sort of seeing that the West might not be what it used to be, yet still holding on to this ambition of becoming a normal Western European country, if you will. Yes. So listen, um, you know, look, I I I am very much a product of the EU. Um, I even went to something called the European School, which was a special school created by Jean Monnet to create little homo Europeans. The, Euro the dynamic of the European project always had a very powerful engine. The engine was overcoming trauma and the trauma of the Second World War and dictatorship, and then overcoming the trauma of the you know Iberian dictatorships and then overcoming the trauma of Central Europe. And the way you overcame that trauma was through this very kind of bureaucratic sort of like rules-based language, which almost in its boring calmness, when placed in the dynamic of traumatic history, was therapeutic. But we're now at the stage where we've forgotten about those traumas because we kind of, we defeated them in many ways. I think it is the most historically one of those incredibly successful projects for overcoming the worst of the past. But we kind of overcame it. And, and now we're in this very dangerous place where you just have the meaningless bureaucracy, yeah, the bureaucratic action without, without the meaning. So there's a wonderful novel by, by this Austrian novelist Manasseh about Brussels called The Capital, which kind of satirizes this. It's 
The EU is this place which has forgotten why it exists. It's just become empty rules. And he, he it's a wonderfully satirical novel. Uh, and the main character is working in the DG culture, probably the European way of life. And he's trying to like make the EU remember why it exists. It's not just there just as a set of rules. It's there because it's 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 trying to uh, um, you know make democracy real, make the dream of democracy real, and overcome the other the, the the horrors of the past. And he's trying to sort of like he's very funny. He's trying to create the new European capital in Auschwitz. <laughs> so that so that, so that we remember why we're doing this. It's not just. It's, it's to stop Auschwitz. It's to stop dictatorship and extremism and, and othering and all this language. And of course, everyone stares at him as if he's absolutely mad. Ukraine is in the midst of that battle. You know, the, the battle with Russia is the new iteration of this very old story between which we call democracy versus dictatorship, which is, again, these words have become empty, I think, in many ways. But but an old battle between, between uh, um, the 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 politics and the social psychology uh, and the philosophy of, of um, oppression and sadism being normal and, and the idea that citizens matter and have some freedom of choice. I mean, look, I've simplified it there. This is a much older battle than the Cold War or the Second World War. It's a pretty old competition. I mean, it's, it's a lot about it in the Bible as well. Um, and, and that's what's playing out in Ukraine. Ukraine is where the European drama is currently playing out. And that's not about joining the EU. And is the EU still the mechanism to 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 really tell that story? I don't know. But that's what's going on. Um, and it's a messy battle. It's not linear. It's not pretty. Uh, but that's what's happening. Um, so if you want, if you want to find Europe, you know, or find where the battle for Europe is happening, you go to Kiev. You, you don't go to Aachen or, or Brussels. So is I would question. Why, is that why it's so hard for? countries like Germany to understand and be more in solidarity with Ukraine because other countries with a different story have already forgotten the issues and the battles of Europe? Well, Germany is a special case. <laughs> I know, I know. A rescue dog of Europe. <laughs> I mean, you, could, you could have said like, you know, you could have said Spain. That would have been more interesting. But, but, but like, 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 you went for Germany. I think Germany, the Germany, Russia relationship is, is really a sense you know something which which is being looked at a lot in the current conflict um but which um you know needs a lot of a lot of um psychotherapy um i don't know i've, I've just wrote a, a long essay indeed site really about sort of expressing my frustration about the nature of the german conversation about Russia and Ukraine. I'm not even getting to the policies. I just want to focus on the language, the propaganda, the movies, the TV shows, the culture. Yeah, culture in its broader sense, all the way from you know political PR through to movies. Because um, that's something that I really focus on. I'm not a you know I'm not an international relations expert. I'm a, I, I look at propaganda and culture, all those sort of things. And and it's very interesting. I'll give you one example. In 2013, a few months before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A very, very, very high budget, very high profile German TV series came out called, in German, Generation Krieg, Generation War, 
multi, multi, multi million, lavishly produced, huge battle scenes, World War II drama, prime time stuff. Something that really captures the national conversation and the public discourse and the public imagination. One of the sort of shows that sort of defines how a country sees itself. It tells a story of a bunch of nice Germans, nice Berliners, caught up in the Second World War, who get sent to the front and have various adventures. The first thing you notice, and a lot of critics took notes straight away, the Nazis are just portrayed as this evil parasite that came and made normal Germans, who are all nice Democrats, victims. Yeah, there's not even an attempt to think about why was Nazi propaganda popular? What deeper pathologies and social psychology did it play into? No, 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 none of that. Germans were good people. Democrats, liberals, nasty Nazis came and forced them to do horrible things. So there's a displacement of responsibility. Lots of critics inside Germany as well picked up on this, by the way. I'm not the only one. A lot of people are like, whoa, this is us really not coming to terms with the past. <laughs> but what happens next is what I'm so interested in. Because after having been unable to process their own responsibility, the film then projects its internal psychodrama onto Russia and Ukraine. Russians in the movie, and a lot of the movies on the Eastern Front, they're savage, they're brutal, but they bring just retribution. You know, they're talked about in the voiceover to the movie, like, they fought like heroes, they were wild, but they gave us what we deserved. You know, this, the Russians mm. become conscience that we lacked. They bring just retribution. There's That's a really weird funny. moment when a Jewish nurse who is actually betrayed by one of the characters, returns as a Russian Red Army officer. So even Jewish, the guilt towards the Jews, is exercised through what the Russians do. The Ukrainians appear only once. Um, they don't speak, but you know they're Ukrainians because they have Ukrainian armbands on. Those are the armbands worn by Ukrainian auxiliary police, yellow and blue, the, the colors of today's Ukrainian flag. And they appear only in, as one thing. They don't speak. They're only one thing. They help, they help the SS in the Holocaust. They round up Jewish children. They are so brutal and horrible that the good Wehrmacht soldier has to stop them. Yeah. Because they're being so horrible to the Jews. The SS then encourage them. So the Ukrainians are associated with the worst things in German history. Yeah? The Russians are the conscience that we lacked. The Ukrainians are all our worst things, all our worst sadistic impulses that we couldn't control. The film is so historically inaccurate, it's gobsmacking. In the film, we see these Ukrainian, you know, helpers, collaborators to the SS in the Russian city of Smolensk, where there are no Ukrainians historically. Yeah, there were local police helping the SS there, Russians. Yeah, because it's in Russia. It's very far away from Ukraine. So they've even, not only have they perverted history, they've completely distorted it and put Ukrainians in a city they could never have been in to sort of say Ukrainians stand for all collaborators and everything that is worse than us, worse than us. So in this bizarre psychodrama, Russia is a just retribution that we have to come to terms with and have a dialogue with and we have guilt towards, while Ukrainians is everything that we deny about ourselves and that obviously we don't want to think about. And what's so striking in the German public discourse about Ukraine is that it has no, it has, it has no subjectivity, it has no agency, because who wants to think about their own worst stuff. That's the stuff you want to expunge out of yourself and throw away. And, and it's incredible how much German public discourse talks about the Russian sphere of influence, as if Russia has rights mm. and Ukraine has none. 
because Ukraine doesn't exist. It's that which we hate in ourselves. So that's one small example. It repeats in many other ways as well. But, but the German public discourse about Russia and Ukraine is, is really making Ukraine a victim of the unresolved psychodrama, which Germany still hasn't quite managed to get on top of, I think. It's made huge strides. I think, I think there's a lot, a lot of amazing things about the way Germany's dealt with the past, but, but there's still big lacunas. Well, you've been hugely generous <clears throat> with your time, um, but I do want to ask one last impossible question before we go. Uh, Dalibor mentioned in his initial question uh, that this was supposed to be D-Day or whatever the Russians would uh, analog to that is. But <clears throat> it appears, you know, who knows how accurate this is, that uh, it looks like there may be some form of climb down on the part of Putin. Four tanks drove backward to get gas or something. <laughs> um, let's, let's, let's hope that's true. But it does raise the question. In fact, there's already, uh, you know, a number of uh, columns trying to assess who won and who won what. Um, let me ask the question in a little bit more open-ended way and just stipulate that if there is a, a non-kinetic to uh, get back into the OODA loop uh, universe uh, uh, resolution to this, um, where do you think... Uh, the situation would then stand? So, look, I think we have to be very careful, especially Americans. We like to think of, of these things in terms of sort of three-act structures and with clear high points and, a, and an end point and a finale and a curtain and a <laughs> catharsis, of course, a catharsis, where we've learned things. We have to learn something at the end because without that, it's not an American TV show. Russia is doing something very different. They're not, this isn't an off-ramp that Putin's looking for. Think of it more as an, an endless Escher staircase that goes round and round and down. It goes, he wants this to last forever. Um, and we can talk about, you know, various forms of Russian culture where we see this, but, but this is not meant to end. This is not a performance like that. This is not a performance with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a round of applause. This is an, an, a performance where, okay, let's let's chase this this metaphor all the way down into Russian culture. Um, there's a whole strain in in Russian theatre and Russian cinema which says the product is not important. It's not for the audience. It's the process that matters. It's getting people engaged in the process. And theatre and film are an endless laboratory, without any catharsis, without even a showtime at the end. It's a and, and people can come to the rehearsal and be part of it as well. So very famously, uh, um, there was a theater in Moscow that was very famous for this. And now there's a, a filmmaker called Ilya Hozhanovsky who spends millions and millions of oligarchical money making endless processes of films which never get anywhere. And all the Western, all his Western backers are always confused, but where's the product? And he's like, product? <laughs> what are you talking about? This is a performance that we're all inside and that it's meant to go on forever and ever and ever. So, so I wouldn't comfort ourselves with any kind of like, you know, moment where everybody takes a bow and there's applause and the Oscars in information war are given out. Um, this is an endless Escher drawing that will go on and on. And what we have to do is create the capabilities and the institutions and the doctrines to deal with this forever. The other thing that's happened that's been ignored because everyone's been so busy, is the Russians and the Chinese 
more openly teaming up and doing a memorandum of understanding about how they're going to mindfuck the world. Now, the details of that corporation are not important. That's already an information game. They've already opened a new avenue, a new movie. These will go on forever. We have to think about how we operate in this world. Peter, thank you so much. I want to, um, I suppose, conclude by just complimenting you again on um, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, which is a book that I think captures not just which is not just about Russia and, and sort of the postmodern nature of Russian propaganda. I think better than any other book that I recall reading it, it sort of predicted how the same techniques and, and, and mindsets uh, would spread across the West at large, right? It's, it's a sort of, it's a book about how, you know, about something where, where, where the Russians were ahead of us, so to speak, where, where uh, not, not unlike, you know, the sort of strange, communist revolution in Russia, which we are, you know, recording this 100 years since the formation, after the formation of, of the Soviet Union, Russia went straight from feudalism to communism without really going through a capitalist phase. Well, now, you know, Russians seem to have been a step ahead of us in, 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 in that sort of, uh, I don't know how to even call it, the sort of disintegration of of a, of a of a of a public sphere and 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 common frames of reference and and it's it's a strange strange paradox i don't know to what extent it's sort of us projecting these concepts on the on 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 on, on the russians and to what extent it's, it's sort of russian culture being being an important sort of in part of of of, of all this uh but but it's it's a sort of paradox i've never quite resolved myself so thank you so much for for, for, for touching on this and, uh, and and contributing to this conversation. My pleasure. And it's lovely, lovely being allowed to sort of Twitter on about sort of like, you know, Russian movies and German TV series uh, in a forum as, as serious and as policy driven as, as, as AI. Okay. Nothing is true when it comes to piling on the compliments. Uh, so there's no limit to it. Uh, Peter, thank you so much. Um, uh, for myself, Giselle Donnelly, Yulia Zoja, and Alberto Hodge. Thanks to the listeners for tuning in to this episode of the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges arising in Eastern Europe along a line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org uh, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. That's one uh, invented word. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Thank you, and goodbye till next time.